When I first started uh, uh, training as a priest, I remember that uh, I was uh, taught by a, a redemptorist. <clears throat> and it was in the mid-70s, and he took the view then, I think, that most people's attention span for a sermon was about seven or eight minutes. <laughs> and we were trained uh, for that, seven or eight minutes, and, and part of the training was that if we went over seven or eight minutes, no matter how far we got in our speech, we, he rapped on the table in front, that's enough, we said enough, we've heard enough. And, and I became rather used to the idea of speaking with broad brushstrokes, uh, seven or eight minutes worth of general ideas. And so this has been rather an interesting challenge from my point of view, uh, to, to think to speak for, well, perhaps an hour. <laughs> Uh, and I thought I was doing fine, actually, until Kim very kindly sent me copies of some of the talks that she'd given, and I realised just how detailed <laughs> uh, and, uh, and how many wonderful uh, uh, classical references there were, and I, began, I got a bit worried. And that's my excuse, by the way, for not having produced much material in advance. And I've just, I've just apologised to Kim to say that it is my intention to, to add to the notes I've got here. I've written some hand uh, notes, and uh, I will add them, and I will send them, and then maybe they can be, they can be sent off later. I think that, that having looked at the people that you're, that you're studying, it seems to me, especially the historical characters, it seems to me they do rather tend to fall into two, uh, two, <coughs> two categories. For some, if I may say this, I don't want to, to, to appear to denigrate them by saying this at all, but they have become, their writings have become fairly academic in a way because there is no current context necessarily in which their writings are, are lived. They're studied, they're believed in, they, they represent a, a, a wonderful source for, for personal development. But there are others, like St. Benedict, and later on I think St. Francis and people like that, uh, who of course have a context, a manifestation in the, mod in the modern world. Uh, I am a Benedictine monk. I am a follower of St. Benedict. And for me, therefore, the spirituality of St. Benedict is something that we live and it becomes rather difficult for it to be translated into something that I present, as it were, as an academic study. And I hope you don't mind that, that having said that I am going to try and speak for about an hour, which I am, uh, I also thought I would still probably fall back on my tendency to broad brushstrokes. I think I'm probably better at questions and answers than I am at, uh, at speaking in detail. And I thought, therefore, maybe just to be able to, to reflect together and, and I could respond to any questions you may have, any thoughts you may have following what I say about Benedictine spirituality, of course, but also the lived reality of the, of the Benedictine life. Um, I, I think probably first of all, however, I, and following uh, the examples I've seen, I should put Benedict in a, hist in a historical context for you, um, so that you can relate him uh, to the other great figures that you have been looking at. Although I think I ought to confess, and I'm not sure this isn't generally true, uh, that the details of St. Benedict's life are pretty sketchy. Uh, and he is known more through his rule, through his writings, uh, than he is by any detailed biography. But what we do know uh, is mainly from a book called The Dialogues of St. Gregory the Great. Uh, and it's a book which was certainly never intended as a biography in the strict sense of that word. A little bit later on when you hear about St. Francis, uh, you may hear that a lot of St. Francis's Life is recorded in a book called The Fioretti, or The Little Flowers of St. Francis. And once again, it was a work of piety more than, it, more than it was a work of biography. And to a certain extent, that is true also of the dialogues of St. Gregory. So there's a certain unreliability uh, about what we know of St. Benedict in a historical context. However, he was, we're told, born in 480. And he was brought up in Umbria, 
uh, a town called Nursia in Umbria, of a noble uh, and well-off family. And therefore his expectations, his post expectations would of course have been great. At the very least, he could certainly have lived a comfortable life, he could have had servants, uh, he could have had fine food. But he was turned off by the values of his society, a very familiar theme of course. And he chose to turn his back on such a life and he went off to, to a small town south of Rome uh, to pursue a life of solitude and a life of prayer. Uh, and he was about 20 years of age at the time, although I have read some uh, studies which have suggested that he was younger. And the place he went to was, well, we now know it as Subiaco. And the monastery of Subiaco, which is still there, and well worth a visit, may I say, a very, very beautifully positioned monastery, is known to us in the monastic world as the Proto-Genobium, the first monastery of the Benedictine order. Now, as was the case with so many of the great figures uh, of spiritual history that fled the world, sadly for them, the world soon found them again. <coughs> and that was in the form of disciples who wanted to tap into their, into their spiritual wisdom. And rather against their first instincts, they became the leaders of spiritual movements. Their initial intention, St. Benedict's initial intention was without a doubt his personal sanctification. It was not his mission to lead the sanctification of a, of a community or a society. But he became famous for his holiness and they followed him. And so it was therefore with St. Benedict who soon found himself the founder of an order of monks, the writer of a rule, and even, by the way, at one point, the object of an attempted assassination. The would-be assassin, by the way, warning to all of us, was the local parish priest. <laughs> we, uh, Benedictines, have often found that, uh, that, that where, we are, where we are positioned, it's, we're not always uh, uh, warmly welcomed by the local parochial clergy uh, for a variety of reasons I won't go into. And that was certainly the case for St. Benedict, and he, he was sent a, a wonderful gift of a cup of wine, uh, which was poisoned. Uh, and he was saved by the fact that a raven uh, flew in, knocked the cup out of his hand and spilt the wine. And one of the symbols you'll see of St. Benedict is, in fact, of a, broken, of a broken cup. Anyway, he subsequently, very wisely by the sound of it, moved away uh, to Monte Cassino. And from there, his monks spread throughout uh, the area of the Western Church. Now, I've written here by the 7th century, but this is where I've written myself a hand note to say, well, or thereabouts, maybe, in the sort of decades and even centuries following that. But by the 7th century, at least to start off with anyway, his rule was becoming to be prescribed, no, not proscribed, but prescribed, for all Western Catholic monks, replacing a number of older monastic traditions. The closest to home for us, I suppose, being the great Celtic tradition, uh, of, that we associate with St. Columba, in fact, the name of my school where I work, uh, and Iona, uh, which is the name given to the building where my office is. <clears throat> so that monastic tradition was replaced. Again, if, if I wasn't clear about that, let me just repeat that. That's an important point, I think, that eventually the Benedictine rule was prescribed. Anybody who wanted to be a monk of the Western Church had to, and a nun, of course, had to follow the rule of St. Benedict. Now, of course, there are uh, famous Benedictine monasteries all around the world. I was trying to think of some you might know, um, St. Paul's Outside the Walls, for any of you who are familiar with Rome. There's a fabulous one, which I once, was once invited to join. Uh, it's, of course, San Giorgio Maggiore, which is in the Grand Canal in Venice, uh, 
lovely place Venice, but I always think it really disappears in the winter. Uh, lovely place to be in the summer, but I think a fog descends for about four months a year. So I didn't go, I didn't go in the end. Mm -hmm. Solem, of course, very famous for the revival of monastic uh, Gregorian chant in the 19th century. Monastery of La Pierre-Quivir, which is where my own abbot president comes from. In this country, Ampleforth, of course, famous school, Downside, among others. Not to mention uh, my own very small monastic community at Farnborough, which is not at the moment particularly distinguished for anything apart from the remains of a French empress and emperor, Napoleon III and his wife. Although when I was upstairs having a quick cup of tea before uh, we came down, I did notice quite a lot of posters of Bede Griffiths, who may, well, you may know that Bede Griffiths was actually prior of Farnborough before he went off to India. Uh, in the 1950s, I think. And in fact, I met, had the, the pleasure of meeting Bede, who came and stayed back in his own monastery while I was guest master some years ago. What goes on in those monasteries, of course, varies enormously. You have some monks, for example, that rise at three o'clock in the morning, uh, and there are some really soft-living monks that don't get up until six. <laughs> some monasteries uh, run farms uh, and keep bees, uh, while, whilst others have famous schools and large parishes. Some celebrate a very, very traditional liturgy, uh, lots of Latin and incense, such as my own, by the way, whilst others are radical, uh, even thought to be quite uh, avant-garde. And I did think that, I'm going to stop there on that general historical picture, but I did think that maybe just the realities of the live life of the Benedictine world might be something that might be something you'd quite like to discuss uh, later on. But more specifically, I want to try to highlight this evening uh, the common root uh, that, that exists for all of those rather varied ways of living uh, in the teaching and the person of St. Benedict. Uh, and I, I'm going to touch on some fundamental themes, uh, though I hope that they also, maybe, those themes will act as a springboard for questions and discussions later on, because, again, I see them as being rather broad themes, which, for me at least, capture the spirit of what you would find if you read about St. Benedict and read, and read his rule. And the first of those themes, I, I will use again a term that comes from the rule, a school of the Lord's service. And that notion, that idea of a school of the Lord's service is right there in the opening chapters. In fact, I'm going to read you a little bit of the start uh, of the rule of St. Benedict just so that you can get the flavour of this idea. He says, And so we are going to establish a school for the service of the Lord. In founding it, we hope to introduce nothing harsh or burdensome. But if a certain strictness results from the dictates of equity, for the amendment of vices, or the preservation of charity, do not be at once dismayed and fly from the way of salvation, whose entrance cannot but be narrow. For as we advance in the religious life and in faith, our hearts expand and we run the way of God's commandments with unspeakable sweetness of love. Thus never departing from his school, but persevering in the monastery according to his teaching until death, we may by patience share in the sufferings of Christ and deserve to have a share also in his kingdom. Following a course such as this one, you don't really need me to tell you what the word spirituality means in essence. But as, as we will all cast it in a slightly different light, uh, perhaps I should start off by saying how I believe St. Benedict would use the term. For him, it is nothing more or less than the path of conformity with the example of Christ, especially with his sufferings. He tells us directly 
that our lives, that in our lives, we should prefer nothing to the will of God. We should prefer nothing to the will of God, no matter where that may lead us. But he also acknowledges that such conformity will not come easily, as well he might. Such a simple idea, conformity to the will of God, such a fundamental challenge to some of our most powerful human instincts. If we, Kim mentioned I studied philosophy, so you won't be surprised that there's a philosopher now on the top of my next page. If we accept Plato's psychology, actually, from the Republic, we will all acknowledge that the appetites, the physical cravings of self-indulgence, are primal instincts and one, ones which hold most people enchained. That is Plato's basic argument in his philosophy, that the human condition, people, human beings, are chained by their cravings, by their desires, by what he would consider to be the baser of their instincts. Now, St. Benedict is not so pessimistic, but like Plato, he, he knows that we need to be schooled. And this is, you know, you can hear a word that I, I'm going to re be repeating now a few times. We need to be schooled. We need to be trained. So he calls his monastery a school of the Lord's service. And he wrote a rule. A rule for the ordering of the monastic life. Now, that may have nothing for you but curiosity value, except for those of you who might be entertaining the idea of becoming a monk, or in many of your cases, taking the veil. Except that many people, and this is a thought, a suggestion that I have for you, that many people in the world have also found that their spiritual growth demands the discipline of rules. And some, indeed, have found in the rule of St. Benedict for monks something that gives their own endeavours a structure and a discipline. It's, it's not for everyone. But I do recall, for example, that a lady called Dr. Esther Duval, I, I, some of you may, may know of Dr. Esther Duval, who wife at the time that I was in Canterbury for a while, uh, of the Dean of Canterbury, uh, and in her own way, past president of the Anselm Society, wrote a book called Seeking God, The Way of St. Benedict, which was specifically designed to appeal to lay people to people who were not living in a, in a monastery. Now, on the other hand, many are happy to turn their back on school rules. I should know that. Most of my boys would be very happy to turn their back on school rules. But being serious about grown-ups, there does come a point when you want to say discipline, schooling, training is for children, and the spiritual life is something that I embrace in freedom for myself as an individual within my own heart and in my own personal relationship with God, as I write here, prefer to pursue their spiritual lives more spontaneously. But I think it's very important, therefore, to understand St. Benedict that he, he uses words like school and rule and training. And this distinction, again, is perhaps something that we may want to, to tease out later on this evening. Benedict draws much of his inspiration um, from the Book of Psalms, uh, and there are 50 references in the Rule of St. Benedict to the Book of Psalms. And right there at the start, he quotes the Psalms on the theme of the discipline of the rule. Psalm 118. May my ways be firm in the observance of your laws. 
And he goes on to acknowledge that it is a discipline from which some will run. And so he admonishes, do not be daunted immediately by fear and run away from the road that leads to salvation. It is bound to be narrow at the outset. When I came to reflect on that theme as a novice, I remember writing some notes for myself as I was locked, as it appeared to be at least in my cell for 23 hours a day, uh, conscious of the lines, I became conscious of the lines from St. Matthew's Gospel. The road to perdition, he says, Jesus says in the Gospel, is wide and spacious, and many take it. The road to everlasting life is narrow and hard, and only a few find it. Perhaps we also hear, hear echoes of the same theme in Robert's, Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Less Travelled. I know there are many, many ways of reading this poem, but I just remind you of the final words. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the road less travelled by, and that has made all the difference. So my first substantial thought for you this evening about the spirituality of St. Benedict is that it is a spirituality of discipline. It is about taking a hard road where you will find few fellow travellers. And it is a road, it is a way of life directed by rules. My second thought, I'm just going to take this off because I've never been able to follow, I can't follow time because I'm used to bells, so uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know, so you had one there actually, you could, have, you could actually ring it for me every, uh, every 15 minutes, so if I put it there, I'll be able to keep looking at it. The second theme that I want to present you, so that first theme, the idea of a school, the idea of rules, the idea of tradition, the idea of, of training. The second theme, which for me is absolutely central to the understanding of St. Benedict, is the theme of balance. Now, understanding why it was that the church imposed the rule of St. Benedict on all Western monks, I think gives an important insight into the essence of Benedict's appeal. The earlier rules that came from the desert tradition, and you've studied, I think, uh, the desert tradition uh, up to this point, and the rules also, by the way, that came from the Celtic church were thought to be harsh in their demands and beyond the reach of mere mortals like you and me. Although the theme of discipline is still a strong one, as I've suggested in my first part of what I want to say this evening, St. Benedict's rule offers a balance which makes it accessible to ordinary men and women, people like me who have no particular aspirations to sanctity. Note that he says of the road it is bound to be narrow at the outset. The whole point in encouraging the young monk to persevere lies in his conviction that the journey can be made even by weak human beings if they do persevere. For me, therefore, to understand St. Benedict is to understand the value of balance. And that is why I've given this second chapter of my short talk, the title, A Spirituality of Balance. Just by way of example, in some monastic rules, the monks were expected to recite the entire Psalter every day. 
150 of them, as you probably know. Reminds me a little bit, I don't know if you know the story of, uh, of, of one of the, of the rabbi, I think it was Rabbi Hillel, uh, who used to boast to his students, this is before, around the time of Christ, that he could recite the entire law while standing on one leg. The law, of course, being the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so, of course, his students challenged the old rabbi to do just exactly that. And he stood on one leg and he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is the one Lord, and you shall love the Lord with all your might and all your soul and all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. This is the entire law and the prophets also. All the rest is merely a commentary. <laughs> <laughs> and he put his foot down. <laughs> I don't know if there's any money on it. <laughs> if you were to retire to recite the entire Psalter in one day, you would have spent virtually all of your waking life on your knees. And they did actually spend virtually all of their waking lives on their knees. But St. Benedict carefully lays out a weekly cycle, which allows his monks to engage equally in prayer and in study, and in what I'm rather generally going to call work. Uh, I may be able to expand on that notion a little bit later on. So there's one example. All of the Psalter in one day meant that you spent almost your entire life on your knees in prayer. All the Psalter in one week allows you to intermix prayer with other activities which St. Benedict considered to be essential to your spiritual growth. Just as another example, by the way, he even announces that, he, this is almost a quote from the rule, that while wine is, not, is thought not to be a fit drink for monks, most monks can't be brought to accept that. <laughs> and therefore he lays down a limit, a very harsh limit may I say, of about a pint of wine per monk per day. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> it's, a, it's a trivial example, but another example, in a way, of the notion of balance. You know, he wasn't, he, you know, he knew that men were men and they enjoyed wine. If you were in, somewhere in the south of Rome working the fields, it was the drink. He allowed them to have that drink. The notion of balance, I think, though, is best captured in a, to be more serious now, in a simple line from the rule. Well, I've actually expanded the line. I wasn't going to use a line. I've used the whole paragraph here, I think. It's one which I've had on my desk ever since I became a headmaster because I think it actually helps me to understand not just you know, my life as a monk, but my job as a headmaster. And he says this. It's, it's, it's an instruction to the abbot. In his commands, let him be prudent and considerate, and whether the work which he enjoins concerns God or the world, let him be discreet and moderate, bearing in mind the direction of holy Jacob, who said, if I cause my flocks to be overdriven, they will all die in one day. Taking this, then, and other examples of discretion, the mother of virtues, let him so temper all things, and this is the line, let him so temper all things that the strong may have something to strive after and the weak may not fall back in dismay. Let him so temper all things that the strong may have something to strive after and the weak may not fall back in dismay. You can probably appreciate why that is a line which I have kept on my desk as headmaster to remind me constantly of my own frailties and of course the frailties of adolescent boys, which I'm sure are only too well known to you. So balance. The second idea I want to keep in your minds as I 
take you through the spirituality of St. Benedict in a little more detail, balance. I'm now just going to take a little detour to help in this. It's a detour. I've written a detour to Oz, and this is actually not Oz as in Australia, but I'm afraid the one that they're under the yellow brick road. <clears throat> Some of you may be fans of The Wizard of Oz, I don't know. It's in my mind because it was our school production uh, last year. And it reminded me again, just what on earth I got up to as a novice, uh, of some more of the things that I wrote, I remember, in my, in my uh, journal as I did my, uh, my novices as a Benedictine. Dorothy, you may remember, steps out on the journey to Oz uh, along this famous yellow brick road. And en route, she meets a lion with no courage, a tin man with no heart, and a scarecrow with no brain. At least, that's what we're told at the beginning of the journey. But in the course of the adventure, the lion does indeed show himself to be brave. The scarecrow starts working out the cube roots, and the tin man cries. In fact, they have, have had these characteristics all along, and in the story of The Wizard of Oz, the task is just to tease them out. These are not just any characteristics. This is not just a trivial idea from the writer of The Wizard of Oz. The lion lacked moral courage. The scarecrow, intellect, and the tin man, the capacity to love. These are the essential characteristics of the human personality. Intellect, moral courage, and love. And these are the aspects of our lives that are to be conformed to God. And they actually form the subject matter of our spiritual journey. You're probably aware of how much the thinking of the Christian church owes to the writings of both Plato and Aristotle. For me, one of the key differences between the thinking of Plato and Aristotle is their understanding of the nature of balance. For Plato, a balanced person was one whose life was completely controlled by his intellect. Because Plato saw the human intellect as the spark of the divine life within our otherwise base humanity. But Aristotle offers a notion of balance with which I am more comfortable, not least because he seems to me to be more balanced. <laughs> I believe that Benedict has the same notion of balance inherent in his rule and central to the life of a monk. First and foremost in our lives then is the opus dei, the life of prayer, the work of God, the life of prayer. Not the entire Psalter every day, but still upwards of four hours a day in church in prayer. It is in prayer that human beings experience the love of God, God's compassion and God's forgiveness. To use the motto of Cardinal Newman, it is where heart speaks unto heart, core ad core locator. It is only when we know how deeply we are loved by God that we can express a similar love to those around us, and even more to those we do not know and whose lives will not affect our own, but who are loved by God with the same love that he shows us.
Mother Teresa of Calcutta expressed the power of that relationship of love when she explained that her work, she said, was something beautiful for God. She, she wouldn't put it like this, but I think this is the heart of what she meant. She could not love those children or those lepers and those beggars with the same compassion if she had not first experienced the love of God in prayer. What the work she did was her response to her relationship with God. Without that relationship with God, she would not have had the strength, the spirit, to do the work that she did. That's what she meant. Something beautiful for God. The second part of our lives in the monastery, called Lexio Divina, divine reading. Study has always been at the heart of the Benedictine uh, vocation, though there has not always been total agreement about what kind of study has the right to be called divine. I remember getting into no end of trouble with my novice master when he discovered that I was reading David McLennan's biography of Karl Marx <laughs> during the divine reading session. <laughs> A very narrow interpretation from his point of view, as I, as I felt anyway, of what could possibly lead you to an understanding of God, because I was working with the principle to, to understand anything about the world, and of any thinker in the world, would eventually help me to understand God better. It wasn't a view that he took. I can't remember what consequences I suffered, but they were severe. <laughs> the point, the importance of Lexio Divina, and, and actually my justification, actually, for, for my own reading at that time, uh, is seen in the phrase of the Benedictine monk, St. Anselm. Uh, in Latin, fides querens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. It's fine to have faith. It's fine for that to be, you know, the core and the heart of our lives and, and concentrating in many ways on spiritual works and so on. But we seek with faith to understand the world better and through understanding the world better, we seek to understand God better. And I believe that the notion of Lexio Divine in the Benedictine tradition actually is a very wide notion, the idea that we could actually seek to understand the world and thereby understand God. The Western Church has, anyway, a long and proud intellectual tradition. It is in many ways quite different, I think, from the religions of the East. Though we seek to be men and women of faith, we have always sought to use our intellects to fill in the detail of our understanding of the nature of God and the nature of his creation. And finally, after his prayer and his study, the monk gets on with the business of community and the business of living and the business of working. He works to earn his keep. St. Benedict makes a very strong point about a monk. He's only truly a monk when he earns his bread, his food, by the work of his own hands. He lives in community, and he's often called to defer to the judgment of the abbot and to his brothers. He certainly has to live with both their strengths and their weaknesses, to say nothing of their peculiarities. <laughs> Simply, we find God also in our day-to-day -day lives and in our day-to-day -day relationships. For God, for St. For Benedict, a successful spiritual journey depends 
upon a balance between satisfying the demands of the intellect, establishing a relationship with God in prayer, and working with one's brothers, interacting in community, engaging correctly in the day-to-day -day moral and social endeavour, which is our daily lives. So finally, and it may not take an hour, we come to the final theme of St. Benedict's writings that I want to share with you this evening. In the seventh, and by far the longest chapter of the rule of St. Benedict, Benedict addresses the theme of humility. Humility is, of course, a moral virtue. But for St. Benedict, it is more than that. It is the most important of all the moral virtues because it provides the foundation for all the others. When we consider the virtue of humility fully, we cannot fail to see that it is the basis, for example, of the spirit of obedience, upon which he lays such emphasis in the rule, and of honesty, and of the source of inner and outer peace. In fact, St. Benedict, I think, in the rule, seeks to show us that all the virtues are so closely linked that when properly interwoven, they actually produce an indestructible fabric. Humility is the basis, the foundation of that interlinking. So to understand what St. Benedict means by humility is to see precisely the essence of his spirituality. It is the way we conform to Christ. So, humility is my third theme. In fact, humility is not a matter of definition, and I wouldn't try at this moment to give you a, sim a simple definition, and St. Benedict certainly doesn't. In the, in the chapter seven of the rule, you'll see that it is a series of steps. Or even better, he uses the image of a ladder, of climbing the ladder. I think he uses the image of Jacob's ladder, actually, of climbing the ladder up to God. Attain speedily that exaltation in heaven to which we climb by the humility of this present life. And I do believe that it is, and if, I, I believe you'll find this and feel this if you read the rule of St. Benedict, it is not just a climb for monks and nuns, but what somebody once called a dozen <coughs> profound lessons in daily living applicable to monk and layperson alike. Now, you'll be relieved to hear that I'm not going to ask you to climb them all this evening, but I do want you to know what those steps are, and perhaps with a few comments uh, from me along the way. The 12 steps to humility. The first two. Obedience to all God's commandments. And the second one, doing God's will before our own. Now, I put them together because I think they... they they're the starting point. Turning to God from oneself. It's a simple, it's the starting point. The Renaissance tried to suggest to us that man was actually in the center of the heart of the world. He was the meaning of existence. Man himself was the greatest thing that the creation had thrown up. And that if you wanted to learn anything, you focused in on yourself and what you could discover with your intellect through science, through, through, through empirical testing, through, rush, through reason, and so, and so on and so forth. St. Benedict, of course, is saying something that is exactly and 
perfectly counterpoised to that suggestion, that the way to perfection, the way to growth, the way to spiritual enlightenment is to move out of yourself. And it is to move to God, of course. And the two ways in which he expresses that is, first of all, obedience to all of God's commandments, and secondly, doing God's will before we even think to do our own. First, the first two steps. The third one, a little bit trickier this, um, obedience to one's superior. I'm rather relieved, by the way, that actually, because I don't know, these are 12 steps we're supposed to sometimes reflect when we do our own spiritual journey as to how many steps we've got through ourselves, and I think I'm probably stuck on two. Um, three causes me quite serious problems. <laughs> Obedience to, to one's superior. I am pleased to, to note that at this stage he's not using terms like total conformity, just obedience. Uh, this is a little bit, isn't it, like the, uh, like again, I've gone back to my relationship with the kids, I can pretty well guarantee, I have to say in all modesty, that they'll do what they're told. Uh, but I can't, of course, get round the, the expression of what we used to call dumb insolence, which lies behind their eyes, you know. <laughs> they may do it, but they still think I'm a fool. And uh, <clears throat> it seems to me that, that, that step three still allows for that. It only says obedience to one's superior. I've written in here, in fact, uh, it, it can even be sometimes obedience to one's inferior. Um, it isn't always easy for us, is it, to accept that the person who has the name superior <laughs> actually genuinely is. He may have been elected to that role. He may have been given that job. I don't know how he ever got it sometimes in one or two people I've met. But you actually think that intellectually, perhaps, personality turns, terrible arrogance, this is, yeah, he's actually not your superior. So why, do you, why, do, why are you obedient to him? Now, there's two reasons, of course, why we are obedient to our superiors. The first one is because it's a jolly good lesson in exercising humility <laughs> to be obedient to our superior inferiors or our inferior superiors. I think it's probably what I meant, isn't it? <laughs> the second reason, of course, this is very much a religious reason, very specifically, and that is the belief within the re religious traditions of the, of the monasteries that, the, that God speaks through the superior, even if at times you find it hard to believe that. That the will of God is expressed through the superior. Now, I think you'll agree that that actually is really quite a hard step. Yeah, that's a very, very significant step. Because an, a, yeah, an intelligent person with a will of his own, you know, and a personality of his own, to have to emb embrace a life in which he's being asked to conform at that fundamental level is a very, very profound step that he's being asked to take. But I also think you can see how, if he can take it, the, 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 the impact on his ability to stop looking in and to look out is enormous. The, first, the fourth one, the fourth uh, step to humility, patient endurance of trials. This also is one which I, I, I would like to reflect on a little bit. In the monastic tradition, uh, I have to say that, that in fact it seemed to me that trials were deliberately uh, put in our way because it is again seen to be a profound step in the path to, to, to humility 
if we are able to overcome our frustrations at the trials that are placed in our way. And so if, there aren't there, if they aren't there naturally, then they will be created. It, it is not simply part of the mythology of Benedictine life that novice masters have asked monks to sweep up leaves in a whirlwind or you know, on, a, on, a, on a stormy day. I have myself you know, swept up leaves on a day when you just knew that the moment you got them that far away, the wind would take them all away again. Why would you do that? Why would anybody ask you to do that? <laughs> the, answer, the answer, of course, is very simple, because it was a teacher. It was a teacher's patience. It was a teacher's the willingness to endure trials. How easy it is to, 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 to dismiss that suggestion, to, to give up on that idea, to stop you know, that activity and just storm off in a, in a, in a, in a huff, as many, many of us did, I have to say, from time to time. <laughs> of course, train, nobody believes, and I don't think my novice master believed for one moment, that, that simply our life should be a matter of overcoming artificial trials. What he did accept, of course, was that our life is actually a matter of overcoming genuine trials. But in order to be prepared to overcome the genuine trials, that at times in our training, we had to be given trials in which to overcome even if they were artificial, because it was a training in patience and in humility. And it is the fourth step. <clears throat> the fifth step, confession of faults. Interesting idea, this. A few things to say. First of all, uh, one of the ways this is expressed in the monastery is that every Lent, at the beginning of Lent, every monk has to write down, first of all, a book that he is going to, uh, to choose to read during the Lenten season, uh, a particular good work that he intends to conduct during the Lenten season. But he has, he has to identify a fundamental fault or flaw in his character that he is going to attempt to mend during the Lenten season and he gives that to the abbot in a sealed envelope, which in theory the abbot doesn't open. But in practice, I think many of them have. Not that it would make any difference, because until relatively recently, we also engaged, and this is a second idea, in what was known as the chapter of faults. You may be familiar with this idea, or you may not. Every Friday, the monks gathered in the chapter house, and we were invited to stand and to confess any weakness of character, any fault, any failing, any sin that we had committed during the previous week. Which is fair enough. Except that the other monks were also invited to tell on us if we didn't tell on ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> the idea, of course, is simple, isn't it? It's the idea that actually there's a catharsis, isn't there? There's an, there's an emptying. If you can be so humble, so lacking in pride, that you're able to say to other people publicly and openly, yes, I, you know, I'm not good at this, I can't do that, I get that wrong all the time, I lost, lose patience, you know, I'm a sinful man. Yeah. We say it, in, uh, obviously I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Catholic priest, and my, the confession is, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, I have sinned in my thoughts, in my words, in what I have done, what I have failed to do, etc., etc. Those who maybe come from the Anglican tradition, I can't remember how the, 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 the confession goes at the beginning of evening prayer. You know, I've done those things I ought to have done, and I failed to do those things I ought not to have done. That's the wrong way around, isn't it? But you know the idea. You know, and there is no health in me. Well, that's fine, isn't it? But it's such generalizations, aren't they? You know? Easy for us to do that. Easy to say, yes, I'm a sinner. Yeah, well, give me the details. <laughs> Tell me your sins. Yeah. It's so easy to stand there and generalize. It's much more difficult, actually, to be prepared to stand up and say, 
this is my weakness, this is my fault, these are my sins, this is what I need to get right in my life. But I think we, again, might all acknowledge the value to our personal growth and development when we get to the point where we can do that and do it reasonably comfortably and actually be open and prepared to admit our weaknesses. No, no, the, the, the Second Vatican Council, <laughs> which is a great deal to answer for in many ways, I think, um, although a, a great deal also to, to, to commend it, sorry, I didn't want to seem too political there, a great deal to commend it as well, uh, actually eventually wore away with all of those. They didn't go away immediately, and I was still party to it for a little while in my early days as a monk, like the tonsure indeed. Uh, which also disappeared, and and uh, for reasons which I can't remember why I was talking about this to the to, the, to, the, uh, to my um, uh, students uh, today. But in fact, also of course the, uh, the 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 whole business of self-flagellation, because what actually what happened after this was we all then wandered off to uh, to our rooms, and were invited to beat ourselves. Um, that again, uh, as I recall, um, I think I'm right. I remember this. It was only at the very beginning of my time in the monastery. That the, that the whip was still in the room when you entered, but actually it wasn't in use. It was there as a symbol uh, by the 1970s. But you'd have to go back too far before the 1970s when that was the next step. You confessed your faults and then you, and then you went and beat yourself up. So, It's entirely possible. I mean, it's not been outlawed. It's just has fallen out of use. Um, uh, and particularly, of course, in, in, in more worldly orders uh, like the Benedictines, the Cistercians are very much more austere uh, uh, kind of lifestyle that could well still practice rules like that. The people who were particularly good at it were the Jesuits. The Jesuits particularly enjoyed beating themselves up, as I recall, and, and, and history will have it and beating everybody else up at the same time. Because <laughs> Some of you sound like you actually went to a Jesuit school, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The... Uh, it, you might also want to know that that is part of the origin of the tradition of confession. Because the origin of the tradition of confession is that the young monk would go to a, an older, wiser monk and would indeed confess his weaknesses and his faults and his difficulties with trying to live the life and would then receive the advice and support of the older monk and the wiser monk. Now, of course, that fell in, became an institution of, of which I'm sure you're familiar, but originally it owes its origins in the, in the belief that confession is good for the soul, just as a matter of principle. And, of course, I think it is something that broadly we would accept. <clears throat> the sixth step, have I got there? I'm still, I'm okay. The sixth step, accept whatever is mean and worthless. <laughs> um, Rather like the one I mentioned before about suffering and enduring hardships and, and so on. Uh, I'm, I'm, my monastery's in Farmer in Hampshire, and I, I, I remember having, I've had a very difficult time with some of the boys I've taught who have visited me who point out that 40 acres of land or whatever it is, or 50 acres of land in Farmer is probably worth the best part of 50 or 60 million pounds, and, and therefore how, you know, in any way is the life that I live... <laughs> You know, a life of poverty or hardship, or, or is it mean and is, is it worthless? In fact, it's far from worthless. There's some, there's some problem in that. We may like to explore it later. Interestingly enough, however, uh, it is believed to be very important in the monastery that you can take whatever comes. Now, what, as a Benedictine, I have to say that it is a little bit of a movement from feast to famine. You know, there are times in our life... You know, he's, very, he's really very comfortable indeed. I, I don't think that there is a wine cellar that can, out, can, be, can beat the wine cellar that's under the Downside Abbey, for example. 
a particularly fine collection of port in case you ever want to visit and want to encourage them to get it out. The, but the important thing is that if it's also awful rubbish that you're being presented with, if it's really poor and, and tasteless and, and, and uninteresting, then you take it just the same. Yeah. It shouldn't matter. The great feasts in my monastery, uh, I remember, we'd have really quite a good lunch. But when we came into supper, I, uh, one particular member of my community who was a cook, he said, he certainly wore one of those hats, but, but the supper consisted of a bowl, an oxo cube, and he passed around some hot water. <laughs> it's a DIY sort of, you know, bovril. And that was it. That was, that was supper. That was, all, that was all you had. And, and so, you know, you went from, I say, from feast to famine. But the idea was that whatever it was that you were presented with, in clothing terms, in food terms, in, you got a good room, you got a bad room, a warm room, a cold room, a room with windows that didn't close, you know, whatever it was, you took it. Yeah. And you didn't grumble. And that was part of the path to humility because you could take whatever came and you didn't grumble, yeah? Just wondering, does that apply to, um, for example, in a discussion? Should you accept somebody's argument that you think is fairly worthless? If, if you mean by that, you have to intellectually assent to it? Oh. The answer's no. Oh, so it's physical things. But it, well, well it, would, it, it would mean, however, that you wouldn't want to you know, contradict a person oh. and, and shout him down. Mm immediately be, because you knew that actually what he was saying was, was unintelligent. You know, I have to say, it's important that you raise that question from my point of view. It's, it's one of the great things I know I've been accused of. By, there's another monk in my house who says, Stephen, I'm not as quick as you. Whenever we have a conversation, the moment I start to say something, you know what the problem is going to be with, that, with what I'm going to say before I've said it. You stop me speaking. You know? mm -hmm. Now, he acknowledges that I'm... I'm pr probably I'm right, you know, and that, on these occasions with him anyway. When, it, you know, but he actually thinks he's got a right to say it, and, and you know, and that's right, and and, and therefore the, the humility would come, surely, in not wishing to say, I, I know what you're going to say, so you know, let me just tell you why you're wrong, even before you manage to speak. <laughs> <laughs> just as another, a final aside, an example really of, of this meanest and worst thing. There was a monk, there was a monk of my house who still does this, and it's very common, I think, in the monastic tradition that when the food was presented on the table soup, perhaps, main course, and uh, dessert. He would take all of it, put it on the same plate, mash it all together, and then eat it. Because as far as he was concerned, the food was for protein and for energy and for calorie minerals and, and so on. And it wasn't for enjoyment. And he would always want to, to turn it into the meanest and the worst, and the worst, rather than, you know, even if it wasn't originally, if it was really quite decent food, it, that was a problem for him. He wanted it to be the meanest and the worst as following the, the path to humility. Whether that's an exaggeration or Benedict had in mind is open to, to discussion, I think. Seven, and eight, profound steps, these. Seven is believing in one's own wretchedness. And eight, total conformity to the rule and to the will of the community. I put them together again. I have a bit of a problem with believing in one's own wretchedness, as I'm sure you can probably appreciate, and I think most of us here will probably have the same problem. It's not that I want, that I want to dwell on. There is a problem with that notion, I think, of, of you know, I'm a worm and no man. You know, it, it's, it's, it's maybe just, in some ways that it's expressed, maybe just a step too far in this whole process of humility, I think, and maybe in danger of damaging and desert, uh, talent and, and, and suppressing mm -hmm. you know, potential, and, and that's not necessarily itself a good thing. But what I think, the, the words I want to stress here, I want to sort of depend upon here, are believing in one's own wretchedness and total conformity to the rule and to the will of, 
the, to the will of the community. What I think you begin to see is this next step, because these are steps, you'll be quite clear about this, so I, I hope that image was clear, mm -hmm. that you are climbing. And the more you go up these steps, the harder it's going to get, but the more important it is, the, more the, the closer you are getting to God. You're now being asked to totally conform. Remember number three? <laughs> Obedience is one thing. We can all handle that probably most of the time. But total conformity to the rule and to the will of the community actually means in here. You've reached the point where you actually are prepared, willing to accept that somebody else's view, somebody else's opinion for how you should live your life has value, as much value as your own, and possibly even more. And believing in one's own wretchedness, not just behaving as though one's wretched, not just accepting wretched things, but actually believing in one's own wretchedness. So I, want, I don't want to stress the content of that. I just want to stress the notion behind it, which is the totality, the way that it's all got to now start to happen inside of here. It's got to be believed and accepted and not just an outer conformity. And that's the step, I think, that's being presented. Next three together. Avoiding unhelpful and unnecessary conversation. Restraint from laughter and frivolity. Ever seen, read, read the book or seen the film, Name of the Rose? Gentle and serious speech, that's number, number 11. So number nine, avoiding unhelpful and necessary conversation. Restraint from laughter and frivolity is number 10. And gentle and serious speech is number 11. They're refinements, aren't they, these? I mean, you're now getting to the point where you're refining this humility. Uh, and you are talking about how um, quietness, if you like, and humility are seen to be intimately linked. Quietness, gentleness, calm, not having the need to push yourself forward, not having the need to express your opinions, not having the need to have something to say on every possible subject, even though you don't know what on earth you're talking about. <laughs> but the ability to remain quiet. I've, I've written here about which, somebody, somebody said about which you do not know, you, should, you would be well advised to keep silent. And Socrates said that a man who is truly wise knows how ignorant he is. That the more you reflect, the more you study, the more you know that actually what you don't know is a million times greater than what you do. And that produces, one hopes, a humility, but in here also a gentleness, a quietness, a willingness to allow other people, if they want to, to speak, but an ability to listen and not to always have to express yourself, always have to talk, always have to respond, always have to have an opinion. I'm running out of time. I'm going to move on. Twelve. We're okay. We are right. Total inner and outer humility. That's number 12. There's nothing much to be said about that. That's the goal, isn't it? The goal is total inner and outer humility in what you think, in what you feel, in what you say, and in what you do. You are humble. And humility, therefore, means, of course, to a very great extent, it's the suppression of yourself, your own will, in favour, ultimately, of the will of God, but expressed often through the actions and lives of other people. Could you just talk a little bit more about um, step 10, restraint from laughing? Yes. The frivolities, right? Because um, most, most times with things that look a bit 
higher at first glance. A little, a little sort of reading around it or a little thought about it. It's not as bad as it first seems. No. So there's a good message there. But uh, just at first reading, to, to, to do with that laughter seems to be to do with that a great deal. Yes. Well, the reason why I, made, I mentioned the name of the road, you know, Umberto Eco's book, some of you may have read it, or if you couldn't bother to read the book, because the first 50 pages were pretty hard work, weren't they, if you tried it. The film was much easier. Uh, the theme of the film was, in fact, the suggestion that Aristotle wrote a, 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 a tract, a, 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 a book, uh, in which he condemned, uh, so he, 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 get it right, no, actually he, he praised laughter yeah, and said laughter was a good thing. And this monk was trying to hide this book because he actually wanted to you know, follow the rules of Benedict by arguing that, in fact, that was going to be very, very damaging. Why would laughter and frivolity uh, be, be damaging? I, you know, I see in here a little bit of a hint of an idea that, come, that actually comes through um, um, Buddhism. I don't know if you're familiar with this sort of general idea of, of Buddhism, that of course it is in fact a very much more profound spirituality in some ways than the Western spirituality, where, where although we're trying to deny the self, it, 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 it's, actually not, it's actually a sort of suppression of the self. But the, but the Eastern tradition, in fact, of course, genuinely wants to deny the self. Life is, life is painful, uh, says, says the Eastern tradition, and desire uh, is something that is, the, is what adds to the pain because desire can never be truly satisfied. And therefore it's like, I should say, it's like, uh, it's like smoking, it's like taking nicotine. The great thing about nicotine is it, it, it satisfies a craving, but at the moment it satisfies the craving, it actually increases the craving. And that, of course, is the point that, that, that the Buddha is making, isn't it? Is that, is that all desire has that effect, you satisfy it. And at the same time, you create a greater, a greater desire. The the background to, to this Buddhist tradition. I think mean, if you go through the sort of the, the the noble eightfold path and the precepts and so on, when you get to the precepts, you actually find him talking about monks shouldn't engage in in dancing, uh, shouldn't sleep on soft beds, you know, uh, and also this whole this whole idea of, of gaiety and laughter and, and joking and humour is is outlawed. I think that. I think the only thing I suppose I can think of in this in this matter is that it, is this commitment and dedication to to seriousness. You know, it's it's wasteful. I think is what he really wants to say. You know, it's to fritter away precious opportunities. It, it, it's very. I, I, I entirely agree with you. I, I you know I think if this means that monks never laugh, you know, if monks are never light and frivolous, it surely has to be wrong. You know. But I don't, I, I, and maybe in the 5th century or the early 6th century when this was written, you could say that and it could be accepted, but in the 21st century, we, we can't, because we actually believe that that lightness actually is something which probably makes us better people, makes us easier people to be with, can help us therefore to be kinder people, more generous people, because we're more acceptable people. And if we're very serious and very down, well, you know, people tend to keep away from us. I think, so I, the only thing I can understand is the wastefulness of, of, of excessive frivolity, the wastefulness of laughter, how you lose opportunities to do things which are serious, you know, reading, praying, you know, engaging in good works. Uh, and I think it's an exhortation against a waste of time. So it, do you think it also suggests a lack of control? I think, I, I think the word frivolity tends to do that, doesn't mm -hmm. it, as opposed to laughter. Laughter, I think, doesn't necessarily. The frivol frivolity certainly does. It suggests a, a, an immaturity, perhaps, even, in a way. And the more mature, uh, more mature people are not frivolous. They may be light and they may, they may be, you know, they may enjoy laughter, but they're not frivolous because frivolous is seen, yes, as being, I think, an example of a kind of immature lack of self-discipline. Yeah. 